Well, you couldn't tell by the weather outside, but the uh, holiday season is fast approaching. Not Fourth of July, <laughs> but uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, isn't that right? And I don't know about your home, but at our home, what that means is that a card table will soon be set up at some point in the living room, some place. And a massive jigsaw puzzle will be laid out. And people, some will sit for lengthy periods of time. Others will walk by and hunt and peck. But they will pick up these little indistinguishable pieces of cardboard. And uh, they will attempt to uh, put them together into a pattern that makes sense. As far as I'm concerned, defies all logic. But... You can tell there are some in our family who do not participate in such holiday rituals. Um, but there is a certain hereditary uh, sense to this as well, I think, because I have noticed that uh, my granddaughter is enamored with puzzles as well. And her parents are doing a very good job working with her to show her that you just don't put the piece down and bang on it to, uh, to get it to fit, right? It has to be put just in the right way so that the pieces interlock properly and, and present the big picture. Well, what is true of uh, jigsaw puzzles is true of theology as well. In discovering what the Bible has to teach on any one topic of theology, there is a process of careful attention that must be paid to various Scripture passages. They must be properly interpreted, of course, in their own context and then they need to be properly fitted together with various other passages that present a piece of the truth that so together when all of those passages rightly interpreted are pieced together, you get a big picture, a coherent picture. That process is called systematic theology. Revelation chapters 6 through 19. You don't have to turn there yet. We won't be there. I've got kind of a long introduction, so just hang with me here. But anyway, Revelation chapters 6 through 19 displays a time of unprecedented horror upon this earth. God will pour out His judgment upon the inhabitants of this planet. Those that have refused His gracious offer of salvation in none other than His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe as a fellowship here, however, that the church, that is, the true believers in Christ, will not go through that time of horrible suffering, but that they will be removed from it. That time of suffering known as the tribulation, we believe that the true church of Jesus Christ, the followers of Christ, will be delivered from that period of time. And that deliverance is commonly known as the rapture. The rapture of the church. The word rapture comes from the Latin, rapturo, which is a Latin translation of a Greek word, which means to seize catch up or snatch away. So the rapture, people say, well, the word rapture is not used in the Scriptures. Well, that is true. The word is hapazo in the Greek, but the Latin 
Uh, translation is rapture or rapturo, which comes to us in the English as rapture. But the meaning is to sneeze, to not sneeze, but to seize. OK, to uh, catch up or to snatch away from something. This concept of a sudden and irresistible catching away of the church is directly taught in Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians Chapter 4. So 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17. Don't open there yet either. Okay? First, I mean, you can if you want to, but I'm not there yet. So 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. Harpazo is used there. Actually, the term is used to be caught away. This idea of being snatched before the storm or caught away is a concept that is nowhere revealed in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament are the people of God ever promised such a deliverance, such a catching away. There is no Old Testament parallel to this. However, it is sprinkled liberally through the pages of the New Testament. And in light of what the New Testament reveals, we can go back into the Old Testament and we can see foreshadowings of this very doctrine. That which is a or was a mystery to the Old Testament saints has been fully revealed to us who live on this side of the cross. So this morning, with the time available to me, and I'm now positive into next week as well, Zach, so uh, <clears throat> it will go two weeks. What I want to do is prevent or, or present to you or review with you ten reasons, ten reasons why we believe that the rapture of the church will occur prior to the tribulation. Ten reasons. And then what I want to do is reflect with you upon the significance of this doctrine for both the life and vitality of this church. All right. So we don't want to learn doctrine just to stuff our heads full of doctrine. There is a practical outworking, a practical implication of this doctrine that we will get to. So are you ready? Ten reasons. I've given them to you, by the way, on your handout. You may want to pull that out and just kind of follow along. I didn't leave you much space to write. I'm sorry. Um, but you can kind of pencil them in and then you can always get the CD or stream it off the web or whatever you would like to do. So we believe, first, in a pre-tribulational rapture because... Every one of these ten has a you know, because. We believe because, and then there's the reason for you. Okay. Otherwise, you'll say, why does it begin with the word of or something? Okay. We believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because, number one, it preserves the doctrine of imminence. The pre-tribulational rapture, amongst all the various options that are out there in evangelicalism, preserves the doctrine of imminence. So what do I mean by that? The English word eminent comes from another Latin verb, which means to overhang or to project. Thus, the English word carries the idea of hanging over one's head. When something is an imminent event, it is hanging over your head. It is ready to overtake you. It is close at hand. That's the idea of an imminent event. It is something that is close at hand in the sense that it can overtake you at any moment. Now, other things may occur first, but nothing has to occur first. Otherwise, the event is not imminent. 
All right. Do you understand that distinction? Something may occur first, but nothing must occur first. Otherwise, you do not have an imminent event. Imminent also does not mean shortly. It does not mean shortly because shortly implies a period of time in which an event must occur. And an imminent event is not time bound. All right. It is not time bound. So it's not that something is going to happen next week. That makes it imminent. It may indeed happen next week. It may not happen for, you know, five years. It can still be an imminent event, an event that is hanging over your head that could occur at any moment. Now, this concept of eminence is speaking of the return of Jesus Christ, the return of Christ as spelled out in the New Testament. And the New Testament is full of examples of the belief of the first century church, the teaching of the apostles, that the return of Jesus Christ was absolutely imminent. For example, now you can turn if you would like. All right. Well, actually, I'm going to do it this way, looking at the clock. Uh, don't turn unless you're really fast, but first uh, Corinthians 15, all right, I'm going to be buzzing through a bunch of scriptures. I'll take you to the ones that you got to go to. Otherwise, just listen. First Corinthians 15 verses 51 and 52. The apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth says the following, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Notice who he addresses in this. We, including himself, them and him. He's saying, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. The Apostle Paul is teaching the doctrine of eminence. He is fully expecting that within his lifetime, They will not all sleep. That is a New Testament euphemism for the death of a believer. They will not all die, is his teaching to them, but they shall all be changed, right? The Lord Jesus will return with the trumpet sound and the dead will be raised and all will be changed. All right. So there is that understanding in the mind of the Apostle Paul that all of the people at the church of Corinth at that time were were in the imminent return of Christ. It could happen to them at any time. Moment. Give me another example here. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes to, to Titus and he says that uh, we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We are to be looking for the blessed hope. Implication, it could happen at any moment. It is an imminent event. It is overhanging them. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. I've kind of condensed it for you here, but James says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The judge is right there. He is right outside the door. Be patient with regard to his return. He is right there. He could come at any moment. First John chapter 2. Verse 28, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. All right. Notice again the we 
When he appears, we, John includes himself and those to whom he's writing, that we may have confidence and not shrink away at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, writing here somewhere in probably around 8090, is writing to this uh, to these believers and he's saying that that uh, Christ could appear at any moment. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. The idea with quickly again is not that it's a, that he's defining it as a certain moment of time. It's again the idea of any moment. I could come at any moment. All right. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So throughout the New Testament, and I've given you only a sampling of verses throughout the New Testament, there is a fundamental understanding and teaching by the apostles that the Lord Jesus Christ could return at any moment. So. From God's perspective, though, there is a fixed order to things. Is that not true? Indeed, over in Acts chapter one, verse seven Jesus said to them, that is, his disciples, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the father has fixed by his own authority. They were questioning Jesus before his ascension and they were saying, when shall you set up your kingdom? That is, when shall you you know, get this millennial program on the road? And he says, it's not for you to know the time that the father has set. There is a certain time. So from God's point of view, it is a fixed moment in history. But from man's or human's point of view, it could be at any time. And so we are exhorted over and over and over again in the New Testament to live our lives as believers under the, 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 um, the reality or the truth that Jesus Christ could appear today. Any time now, He could close the curtain of history and come back. Right, so the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Now, how does that relate to the pre-tribulational rapture of the church? The snatching or catching away of the church prior to the seven-year period of tribulation? Well, I think the answer is obvious. And that is, if the tribulation has to come first, then the event of the return of Jesus Christ can no longer be what? It can no longer be imminent. Because you will know immediately that seven years has got to happen first, then He'll come. If you are under the impression that the return of Jesus Christ for his church occurs midway through the tribulational period, then you know for sure that right when the tribulation begins and we know that it begins with the signing of the peace treaty between Antichrist and the nation of Israel, the scripture tells us, you'll know for sure that's Daniel nine, by the way, you'll know for sure that when the peace treaty is signed that the right, if you believe in a mid trib rapture, that the Christ is returning in. Three and a half years. It's no longer an imminent event. The only theological understanding of the return of Jesus Christ for his church that holds the doctrine of imminency without problem is the pre-trib rapture. That is the snatching away of the church and then the seven years of torment. Okay? So we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church because it preserves the doctrine of imminence. Second reason. We believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church because, secondly, it provides comfort to the church. It provides comfort to the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, please go ahead and turn there. If you are using a pew Bible, that's 
page 1183. So 1 Thess 4. You know, normally we'll take a passage of Scripture and we'll camp there and we'll work our way through it, right? Word by word, clause by clause, and pull it all apart and put it all back together again. But we are building a jigsaw puzzle here, okay? So we're pulling pieces from many places and putting it together. We're also taking what is a a, uh, six-week fit class and we are now condensing it down to two sermons, all right? So um, we're necessarily going to move quickly through some of this. But we believe in a preacher of rapture because it provides comfort to the church. First Thess 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That, again, is the New Testament euphemism for the death of a believer. Only believers are spoken of in the New Testament as being asleep. All right? So those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another. This is a passage of comfort. This passage is designed to comfort the church. And is not the comfort of a general resurrection of the dead. It is the comfort of the reality of the return of the Lord to snatch away, to catch away, verse 17, right? Those who are His, His own. Notice verse 16 at the end, it says, the dead in Christ. That, by the way, is a technical Pauline term to speak of the believer. One who is united by faith with Jesus Christ is spoken of by the Apostle Paul as being in Christ. So those who are in Christ shall be snatched or or shall be taken up from the the graves, their bodies to return to be reunited with their spirits. And those who are alive shall be caught up together with them and we will be always with the Lord. Comfort one another. Now think with me on this. If the prospect for the Thessalonian believers was seven years of horrifying tribulation, what kind of comfort would be In these verses, how would the Apostle Paul speak of this as comforting? If there's seven years of purifying, refining tribulation, as some would have us believe, in store for the church, then Paul's promise to them is pretty doubtful. If he is saying to them, listen, after seven years of tribulation, then Christ will return and the dead will rise and those that are left will be caught up together and you'll meet the Lord in the air and thus you'll always be in the Lord with the Lord. What comfort is there in that? Aren't the dead better off? Would it not be better for the dead to remain dead and miss the seven years of tribulation? But the comfort specifically that he gives here is the fact that they will not miss it, but they will be resurrected and you will join them at the same time. Now, these believers go back to uh, verse six, chapter one, just so you understand, these believers are already suffering much 
tribulation. Right? Verse 6, 1, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They are already suffering. This is a suffering church. It is not much encouragement to tell them that, by the way, you are already suffering, but don't worry, much more suffering is to come. Okay? Comfort one another with these words. Okay? There's a lot more. It's worse. Think it's bad now. It's going to get worse. Comfort one another with these words. No. The Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord. All right, you understand that? So if the rapture of the church occurs at the end of the tribulation, then the, the comfort factor of the rapture has been removed. But if the rapture occurs prior to the tribulation, then Paul's words of comfort to one another make sense. All right? Third reason. Third reason. We believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because Christians are not destined for wrath. Christians are not destined for wrath. Chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Now, let's talk for a minute about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not like human wrath. Human wrath is uncontrolled, it is frequently irrational, and it is an out uh, display of, of uh, human sinful anger. Okay? That is not what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God is a settled, passionate, burning anger of the Creator towards those who are His creation who have rebelled against Him. It is, it is a a settled anger. It is a fixed anger from creator against creature. And according to the Bible, the place where the wrath of God is most fully and completely expressed is in the place called the lake of fire. For it is there in the lake of fire that He will cast those who reject Him fully and finally where they will be tormented forever and ever and ever. But... There is a temporal sense to the wrath of God as well. And the temporal wrath of God is reflected most fully for us in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, right? The seven years of tribulation, of horror being poured out on the earth. Some would say, by the way, that, well, that's not quite true because the first three and a half years of the tribulation, which is the time of the four horsemen, right? It is man's wrath upon the earth that people are experiencing, and it's not until the second half where it's God's wrath, I would beg to disagree. It is Christ who breaks the seals and releases the horsemen to pour out wrath on this earth. And you can find an Old Testament example in God using Babylon, right? Wicked Babylon to pour out His wrath on Israel. So just because the beginning of the tribulation, the wrath comes through human instrumentation, don't for a minute be fooled into thinking that's not God's wrath. That's being poured out, for it is. The promise here, 1 Thess 5, 9, again, look at it. God has not destined us for wrath. That is not a promise that the church will escape all um, 
trial and persecution. That is not a promise of that at all. The church is not exempt from persecution. The church is not exempt from trials, right? Scripture and history tell us that the church of Jesus Christ has suffered uh, tremendously over the last 2,000 years. But this temporal suffering and persecution is not the same as the very wrath of God. The eschatological wrath of God of which the tribulation is but a down payment is but an illustration of what the lake of fire will someday be like. So, third reason, Christians not destined for wrath. Fourth reason. The fourth reason. We believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because... Now, this one you're going to have to work with me on. Because of the distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. Because of the distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. What we're going to have to do with this is we're going to have to kind of flip back and forth between 1 Thess 4 and Matthew 24. All right? Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is the great prophetic passage in which Jesus speaks of his second coming. So you can go ahead and flip back there to Matthew 24. It's also known as the Olivet Discourse. Now, it's important as we look at this, and we're only going to be able to look at it briefly, but it's important to understand the background of it. In this great passage, Jesus is responding to three specific questions that his disciples have asked him. All right. Look at the end of uh, chapter 23. And there Jesus has just finished pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel. Right. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you that from now on you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he came out from the temple. Do you see that? That, by the way, is when at verse 38, your house is being left to you desolate. It happened. The fulfillment is immediate. Jesus leaves the temple. And that would point you, by the way, back to uh, to Ezekiel, beginning in chapter eight through 11, where the spirit of God prophetically right? Ezekiel sees him leaving the Old Testament temple. Same thing here. God has abandoned the nation at this point. Christ has left the temple. And as he was going away, verse one, still when his disciples came up, they came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Right? And they're saying, Jesus, look at the temple. It is beautiful. And by the way, it was beautiful. It was all uh, had marble uh, overlay, white marble. The sun would reflect off it. It would be like looking into the very you know, face of the sun itself. You'd have to turn away. It was a beautiful, gorgeous building. Herod's temple, 40, I think it was 46 years in the making. And so they are pointing this out to them, to him. And Jesus, verse two, responds to them. And he answered and said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. They're saying, look how beautiful the temple is. And he says, it's all going to be destroyed. Verse three, and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, and here are the three questions. Tell us, when will these things be? i.e., when will the temple be destroyed? Secondly, and what will be the sign of your coming? 
What sign do we look for that you are returning? Third question, and of the end of the age. That is, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Okay, three questions. When will the temple be destroyed? What is the sign of your coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? Jesus will now begin to answer those questions. However, in Matthew 24, he does not respond to the first question. If you want his answer to the first question, you have to look in Luke 21. We're not going to do that, okay? I don't have time for Matthew 24 today. But you would go to Luke 21, verses 20 to 24. Just pencil it down. That's the answer to the first question. When will the temple be destroyed? Jesus answers the question, Luke 21, verses 20 to 24, which is just another account of the Olivet Discourse. The answer in short form is in A.D. 70, when the Roman armies surround it and destroy it. But the answer to the remaining two questions, what will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? Is what he takes up now in chapters 24 and 25, and they deal with the second coming. Are you following me? All right, good. Now, if we carefully compare what he reveals about the second coming to what Paul reveals in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the rapture of the church, we'll see that although there are similarities, there are significant differences. It is not the same event. Okay? There are are similarities in a number of respects, but there are significant differences that need to be pointed out. And therefore, the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church cannot occur at the same time. They are not the same event and they are not an event that occurs next to each other. Now, this doesn't prove a pre-trib rapture, but it certainly allows for the pre-trib rapture. Now, let me point out for you some of the differences, okay? First Thess 4, Jesus descends, right? He comes in the air. And he returns to where? Heaven. He goes back to heaven. All right? John 14:3. He goes to the Father's house, right? Prepare a place for you, and I will come for you, right? And if I come, if I prepare a place for you, I'll come for you and take you to be with me, that there may you be always. All right? He takes to the Father's house. So in first Thess, he descends in the air and he takes the church and he returns back to heaven. But in the final event, the second coming, he comes to earth and he dwells and reigns on earth. Second coming, he comes and remains in the rapture. He comes and he, in the air. He never, hits the, never gets to the earth. And then he leaves again. All right? And you can see that in uh, Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Right? And all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So his second coming is a coming to stay. The rapture of the church, back to First Thess 4, is a time of coming to receive people to himself in the air. Beyond that, look again back at First Thess 4. Be reminded that at first, in First Thessalonians 4, the believers leave the earth. The believers leave the earth, right? He gathers his own, those who are in Christ. But in the final event of the second coming, back to Matthew 24, verse 31. I told you, you have to keep your thumb in here. He sends forth his angels with a great trumpet and they gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. 
So in the rapture in first class four, it is Christ who gathers his own in Matthew 24, at the second coming, it is the angels who gather the elect. All right, two different gatherings going on. Third, at the rapture of the believers, I said this before, they leave the earth. And at that moment, at least, the earth is no longer inhabited by believers. All right. If all the believers have been caught up, there are no unbelievers left on the earth at or excuse me, there are no believers left on the earth, at least for a moment. The earth is only, is only unbelievers. But at the final event, the second coming of Christ, it is the unbelievers who are taken away and only believers remain to enter into the messianic kingdom. Matthew 24, verses 37 and following. All right, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. The days of Noah were a time of judgment. All right? And so uh, it goes on here and it says, uh, let me find the verse. Uh, there you go. There'll be two uh, verse 40. There'll be two men in the field, right? One will be taken. One will be left Two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. The ones that are taken there are the unbelievers, not the believers. This is a judgment scenario. OK, so here at the second coming, you have the unbelievers taken away from the earth and only the believers remain to enter into the messianic kingdom. At the rapture, the believers are taken away and only the unbelievers remain on the earth. Now, are you go cross-eyed yet? Okay, yeah. All right, want we try that one more time? No, I don't need to. You got it. All right? Rapture of the church, unbelievers go, or believers go, unbelievers stay. Second coming, unbelievers go, believers stay. You got that? That means it can't be the same event. And let me just um, illustrate this for you as Jesus did in Matthew 13. So go ahead to Matthew 13 and let's look at his illustrations so that you know. And I'm not kidding you. He illustrates these two events with the parable of the wheat and the tares. Right? You remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? Verse 30 Matthew 13, it says, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, first, gather who the tares, the tares represent what the unbelievers. All right. Beyond that, you can uh, you can take a look at um, the uh, parable of the uh, the dragnet. Right. And uh, that illustrates it for you. Matthew 13, verse 48. 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. When it is filled, they drew it up on the beach. And they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. You understand the difference? All right. At the second coming, it is the wicked that are removed from among the righteous at the at the rapture of the church, it is the righteous that are removed from among the wicked. Therefore, we are not looking at the same event. Okay? Can I try one more on you? One more and we'll pause. Alright? We believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because. Because of the purpose of the tribulation. Because of the purpose of the tribulation. The emphasis of the tribulation is primarily Jewish. It is primarily Jewish in nature. And its 
purpose is to prepare the nation of Israel to receive her Messiah and enter into the new covenant. It is a it is designed to break the back of stubborn Israel and prepare her to receive her Messiah. Zechariah. Okay, so go to Zechariah. That's at the end of your Old Testament, right? Zechariah comes before uh, Malachi. And then Matthew. Zechariah chapter 12. Verse 10. Zechariah 12.10, he says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Remember Jesus said, that I leave your house desolate, you will not see me again until you say what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The fulfillment of that prophecy, Zechariah tells us here in Zechariah 12 and verse 10 and following, occurs at that time when the nation bends their knee to receive their Messiah. Beyond that, if you go back to the left a little further to, uh, to Daniel chapter 9, and that's worth going to and reading. Daniel 9, and beginning in verse 24. First part of Daniel 9, by the way, is Daniel, uh, he's been looking at the books and uh, he's Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70 years of captivity. He's been doing a little ciphering. He figures the 70 years must be just about up. And so he prays and he says, Lord, you know, is this the time, right? The 70 years seem to be just about up. And he, and he prays this long prayer of repentance for his people. And then he says, verse 20, now while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people, presenting my supplication and so forth, right? Then the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, came and spoke to me. And what did he say? Here it is, verse 24. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, that's a power-packed verse that... Is, we're not going to be able to deal with. But he says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. All right. Or 69 weeks, weeks of years, seven days is a week. So it's, a, it's periods of seven years. All right. And it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the prince of the people who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end that there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. What in the world is he talking about? Well, here's what he's saying. He's speaking to Daniel with regard to the people of Israel. And he's saying, Daniel, this is what your future looks like. There will be a period of 79 weeks of years until or 69 weeks of years, rather, until Messiah comes and then Messiah will be cut off. 
and then there'll be another week. And in the, and in the middle of that week, a, a treaty that you had signed, right, a firm covenant, verse 27, will be broken. And there will be a time of, of uh, destruction and, and sorrow and, and uh, desolation that will come upon you. Just as the 69 weeks are weeks of years, so we believe this final week is a week of years, seven years. The very seven years that the tribulation is revealed to us in the book of Revelation. So the tribulation period, the point of all this, is a Jewish, primarily a Jewish period. Notice the kind of terminology, by the way, that is used throughout the scriptures to talk about this particular time of sorrow. Again, it's Daniel's people, chapter 9, verse 24. In Matthew 24, he speaks of the coming of false messiahs. Matthew 24 also says, talks about the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 24, verse 20, it talks about flight on the Sabbath day. Daniel 9, Matthew 24, it talks about the temple and the holy place. Matthew 24, 16, the land of of uh, Judea. Revelation 7, 4 to 8, it talks about the 12 tribes, right? Of the sons of, uh, or the children of Israel, the 144,000 Jews. Revelation 15, 3 talks about the song of Moses. Joel 2, 28 to 32, it talks about signs in the heavens. It's picked up in Matthew 24. Revelation 6 talks about signs in the heavens. 9:27 of Daniel, the covenant with the beast also talks about the sanctuary and the sacrifice and the temple ritual and so forth. So all of these um, things that are, that are spoken of the tribulation period are all Jewish in their origin or, or flavor. All right? It is a Jewish period of time. It is not a Gentile period of time. Therefore, we believe that the church, which is primarily made up of what? Gentiles, will not be here for that tribulation period. It is a time designed by God to bring the ancient people back to himself. Okay? So, we've given you five reasons this morning. There are five more. And we'll just handle the five more next week. Okay? Bring your, uh, bring your Bibles and come back next week and we'll look at the last five together. Vincent, why don't you come up here? Because we have some families coming into membership. Let me just pray for a moment and uh, then you bring those up, would you? God, our Father, we, uh, we've gone through a bunch of stuff and we've done it really quickly. <clears throat> but I pray that your Holy Spirit would, uh, would at least cause the big picture to lodge in all of our minds. Help us to understand that the church of Jesus Christ has this great and blessed hope that we are not destined for wrath, but that we are to be with Christ forever in the Father's house. Amen.